Hello and welcome to a podcast about tactics. I'm John McKenzie and I'm joined by a man who shares a name with our subject today. It's Eric Elias. Eric, hello. Hello, how are you? Yeah, doing really well and really looking forward to chatting to you today. Eric is a football scout from the Netherlands, now consulting one professional club in Europe. He also runs Between the Posts, a website about football tactics that publishes match reports about the top five leagues in Europe. And on top of that, you've watched a lot of football played by the man who we're going to talk about today and a topic that the whole world seems to focus on every time they lose a game, which, as things stand, is rather frequent. Yes, we're talking about Manchester United's next manager, and we finally know who that manager will be. Ajax Amsterdam. Amsterdam's Eric Ten Hag, and who better to talk about him than a man who has watched him throughout his managerial career, so it's a real treat to have Eric on the show today. But before we begin, as ever, a reminder that one of the best ways for me to build my audience is by word of mouth, so if you like this podcast, do recommend it to friends who you think would enjoy it. Anyway, enough of that, time to get to Eric Ten Hag. Let's start off by contextualising the problem. Eric, as an outsider, what have you made of the mess that is Manchester United? Yeah, let's talk about what a mess that club is uh, later. <laughs> but first, let's get the pronunciation right. Because um, I've heard Eric Den Haag. I've heard Eric Ten Haag. People misspell it with two A's. But it's <laughs> Eric Ten Haag. And if you don't want to do it the Dutch way, I think your way is very good. You said Eric Ten Haag, which is, I think, kind of the British way to pronunciate his name. But yeah, that's been a challenge for English media so far. <laughs> I'm glad I've passed that test. Sure. Manchester United, it's not a very original story that I have for you, but I think their biggest pitfall in the last 10 years has been recruitment, right? So I think a lot of listeners of your podcast will agree with me that smart clubs always have a certain style of play in mind, and they always recruit players and managers in that style of play. And once again, this is not an original story, but after Sir Alex left, First, they went for David Moyes, then for Van Gaal, then for Mourinho. Like, where's the overall style? I don't see it. Nobody see it. Then they went for Solskjaer, which was the most ridiculous decision, I think. And now with Ranjik, it's it's even worse. So over the past 10 years in European top football, it's hard to think of a club that is worse led. And that's a very harsh analysis and a harsh statement, but I think it's true. One thing I would like to add, though, is that they do seem to give managers a lot of time. Right. So even if the results are not going great, they gave Van Gaal two years, they gave Solskjaer quite a lot of time, actually, if you see how the team played. So I think that's interesting that even though the results are not always going their way as a manager, you do seem to get quite some time there. And I wonder, John, how you think is this disinterest? Because we always hear, and Van Gaal even said it recently, that Menu is a commercial club and they don't care about the football side that much anyway. Do you think it is like that or is it something else? Yeah, I suppose in my more cynical moments, I have described Manchester United as a business with a football club attached. And in many respects, that has been the template over the last few years. But I wonder whether or not they're now arriving at a point in time where they have to accept that it's not good enough just to have that brand awareness. There has to be some sort of performance on the pitch to justify it so we are seeing a bit of a change in terms of the front office at Manchester United it'll be interesting to see that one unfold but I think it's an interesting point that you make it is true that Manchester United have given their managers a decent amount of time to settle in and I think that will suit Ten Hag in the long run right? Yeah, of course. It's interesting to note that Ten Hag, even though he has been coaching for about 10 years in head coach positions, had four jobs, he's never been sacked. So that's quite special nowadays. He's been around for 10 years, four jobs, never been sacked. 
I do think he will get the time at Menu, and that will be a very good thing for him because he needs some time to get his ideas across. Well, we're going to go into this in more depth at the end of the episode, but I am interested in hearing at the beginning what difference you think a manager can make to the situation Manchester United are in. So we've seen, as you've said, a litany of managers fail to turn things around at the club. Is the expectation of a managerial solution part of the problem? Yeah, I think in our little corner of the internet, the football tactics niche that we both find ourselves in, you with all your amazing tactics podcasts and uh, Leeds United stuff and everything you do and myself with Between the Posts, I think a manager's influence nowadays is overrated in our little corner. I think people place a lot of emphasis on style and what a manager does, but I think in a lot of cases, the manager is not that important. But it's still the most important guy in the club when you look at a football perspective. The most important individual, because there are not a lot of players that can improve a team as much as one manager can do. But I still think the 11 players on the pitch are the most important. Does that make sense? I think so, yeah. But yeah, of course, managers can improve teams. And my favorite example of this is uh, when Lampard was sacked at Chelsea and Tuchel came in. And in the first week, he changed the system. In the following months, he drilled passing patterns into that very same team and on the basis of being a very good knockout team they won the Champions League so a manager once again I think we tend to overrate the influence it has at the moment but I still think they can make a difference and if you have a manager like Ten Hag who has proven over the last 10 years that he makes his teams better and we will dive into that a lot more in the upcoming hour or so but he has proven in various scenarios that he will improve the team of course, that will make a difference. But what men you need is better recruitment. As I said earlier, there is no style that they have put in place over the last decade. But just now, before we started this podcast, I read a little article that they are after a guy called Paul Mitchell, who's now at Monaco. Yeah, I'm sure that's true. He was, was he at Spurs as well, I believe. Is that right? Yeah, so if they get a manager in Ten Hag who can improve the squad and they get better recruitment and they still have a lot of money, then of course the managerial solution is part of the problem. I think so. Well, let's move on to talk about Ten Hag. First, for those listeners who might not know too much about his time outside of Ajax, let's just talk through his career. I've got his CV in front of me. So let's start off by talking about his career as a footballer. It was a fairly unremarkable career, I suppose. So basically, he spent a lot of time at Twente with trips out elsewhere around the Netherlands. So do you want to talk us through his career as a footballer? So I was born in 1994. So I never saw him play. He quit in 2002. So I never really saw him play. You mentioned the club FC Twente. That's huge. He is from the area of Twente. His dad was a board member for some while at Twente. Not when he played, but a couple of years ago. His entire family supports Twente. Ten Hag played about 200 games for Twente. He worked in the youth academy at Twente. So his club is Twente and not Ajax. Yeah, if you're just a casual football fan, you would be forgiven. If you do not know FC Twente, they are now doing very well, fifth in the Eredivisie. It's just a, uh, in the Netherlands, we have a term called province club, right? It's just a club from the region. It's very popular in the East. And he played there in three spells and his entire family supports it. As a player, very cliche for a manager. He was a center back or a defensive midfielder. So that's very cliched. And he was slow. So he had to be smart, like the exact cliche of a former player that becomes a good coach is Ten Hag. 
in terms of his coaching CV, we'll just run through it now so people can contextualize it. But he takes a first job at Go Ahead Eagles in 2012, which is 10 years after he has finished his career as a footballer. He takes an interesting job, I think, at Bayern Munich by the second team in, in Bayern Munich. And that's during the Guardiola era, which I think is interesting. And then there's a two-season stint at Utrecht, and then he moves to Ajax. So talk to us about that move into management and his first coaching job. So first of all, during his player career, there was no situation as with Pochettino, who was player under Bielsa, or Guardiola, who was player under Cruyff, or Xavi, who was player under Guardiola, and was influenced that way. That was all not the case. I went through his managers in preparation for this podcast. Yeah, not one guy that you would say is a really inspiring manager or something. The interesting thing with Ten Hag is that he started coaching immediately after his career. And as you said, he did some interesting stuff. Of course, he did not have a player CV. Let's say he did not have 60 caps to his name. He was not Marco van Basten. He was not a remarkable player. So I think he had to go that way. He started in the youth at FC Twente, where, of course, he had amazing connections. And he worked his way up in the Youth Academy of Twente. So he was a youth trainer. Then he was the academy director there. So he first really took his first steps in youth coaching. And I think he made a lot of mistakes there, probably learned a lot. Then he was academy director. Then he became the assistant at the first team at FC Twente with a manager who is called Fred Rutten. Pretty good manager, we say in the Netherlands. Always likes to play out from the back. You know, really the Dutch classic style. And then when Fred Rutten was manager at PSV, Ten Hag went with him as the assistant. So what we see from like 2002 until 2012 is that Ten Hag really built his career and did a lot of stuff and really made all the mistakes that you can make probably and just learned from it for 10 years before he took his first head coach job. And that's really a theme that will come up later as well, that he makes some really interesting choices and he prioritizes learning over getting a big job immediately. And then after 10 years of doing all that work in the background and learning and all that stuff, he signs at Go Ahead Eagles, which was in the Dutch second tier at the time. So still not a high profile job, but he was head coach after 10 years in 2012. Yeah, we'll talk about Go Ahead Eagles in a minute. I just would like to dwell a little bit on that slow progression after his retirement. You've made it very clear that he probably does that because he wasn't a, a remarkable player and had a, a fair amount of learning to do. But how important do you think that that stint has been for him? Yeah, very important. Someone who is very known in your country, Steve McLaren, was head coach at FC Twente. If I think back on it, I think, how was that possible? But Steve McLaren was the head coach at FC Twente and Ten Hag was his assistant for a while. And he, McLaren said that Ten Hag guy was so meticulous, always had all the preparations done. And I think, first of all, that was just the mentality of Ten Hag because he is a perfectionist. But I also think he learned a lot in that first six, seven, eight years when he was in the background. Well, let's talk about the go-ahead Eagles stint. What did you make of that? Was there anything that particularly stands out from there? Yeah, I'll be honest. The go-ahead stuff of all the Dutch clubs he managed, I watched the least. I'll say a couple of things about it. First of all, this is a podcast about tactics. So we talk about the tactical side of stuff, but I will say it one time. Every single player that worked under Ten Hag in the last decade, which starts at Eagles, says that he is so, so meticulous in everything, not only tactics. So we will talk a lot about the tactics he used, but 
at Go Ahead, for example, he made sure that everyone did the same amount of carrying the stuff to the training field. He was talking with the groundsman how long the grass should be. He was talking about nutrition, obviously, about power training, all that stuff. He really took it to the next level. And that's something, if you speak to any player of Den Haag, they will all say, yeah, he, he had to be perfect every time. And his former assistant manager, Shors Ulte, always says, if you get it 99 times right out of 100 with Ten Hag, he will give you compliments for the 99, but he will also say, hey, that 100 time, that wasn't good. Eh? So that's how he is. Yeah. And then his time at Go Ahead Eagles, what would you say about that tactically? Yeah, good that you keep me on track. <laughs> what he did was, first of all, he took Quincy Promes with him from 20 Youth Academy. This will be a theme that he takes players with him that he knows personally from former jobs. The style at the time, I watched some highlights from their playoffs. It seems to me quite Dutch. 4-3-3 shape, wingers wide, playing the striker, and then the 10 comes underneath with a third-man run. It was well drilled in. You can see that clearly, but it was, ah, let's say, a bit old-fashioned, you know? Just a bit the style that, that is, has been in the Netherlands for so, so long. Not that dynamic, as you see later at Utrecht and maybe at the Ajax. Just It was a bit more static, of course, with players who were... Not as good in the Dutch second tier, but okay. And they get promoted to Eredivisie for the first time in a long time. Go at Eagles. So they get promoted. And then at the end of the year, this is so fascinating to me. Ten Hag does not go with the team to the Eredivisie. He does not go to a bigger club in the Netherlands. He does not stay on as a head coach, but he chooses to go to the second team of Bayern who were in the German fourth tier at the time. Yeah, that's a remarkable move in many respects. What do you think motivates that move? Yeah, I think twofold. That he wanted to see behind the scenes how it is at a big club, which Bayern obviously is, one of the biggest clubs in the world. And he has never been on record on this, which is a shame. But I have to think that he wanted to watch training sessions from Guardiola up close. I tried to find it out if Bayern approached him or he approached Byron and how that went, I couldn't work it out. That was not in one interview whatsoever. It wouldn't even surprise me if Ten Hag would have contacted Byron himself. But anyway, he went there, I think, just to learn, just to learn. And once again, I think if you have 10 managers that get promoted, the majority of them would either go on to a bigger club in the Netherlands and take a head coach job or go into the Eredivisie with the team that just got promoted. And he just goes out. Fascinating move. Yeah, and obviously there is that influence of Guardiola there because, as you said before, when he was at Go Ahead Eagles, it feels as though he's playing sort of fairly standard Dutch tactics. By the time he leaves Bayern to and goes to FC Utrecht, he has started doing a lot more interesting things, I think, in terms of the, the tactical side of things. Yeah, very true. I tried this week to look on the Weisscout to the second team of Bayern, but surprisingly, one of the few things Weisscout does not have is the German fourth Cheer. So I couldn't watch it. I can only guess what happened there. And my best guess, which I think is true, is that he came in as a very good manager that can instill a certain style of play and that he already could do that based on what he did at Go at Eagles, but that his tactical toolbox just got so much bigger at Bayern by watching Guardiola sessions, by trying stuff out. Because when he comes back at Utrecht, He's a different manager than when he was managing at go-ahead, that's for sure. Well, let's talk about that time at Utrecht now. So in terms of the tactical side of things, what are the sort of things we start seeing from Ten Hag at this point? First of all, 
He starts at Utrecht in 2015. If you remember, 2016, the Dutch team was not at the Euros. 2018, the Dutch team was not at the World Cup. We were in a bad place at the time. This had to do with our outdated tactics. And that was clear in the Netherlands because I'm not exaggerating. Every single team in the Netherlands in 2015 played 4-3-3. And without the ball, the wingers come next to the midfielders. The 10 pushes up and it's 4-4-2. And once again, I'm not exaggerating. 18 out of 18 teams in the league played like that. 4-3-3 with the ball, 4-4-2 off the ball. What Ten Hag did in the Netherlands when he came in, first weeks he introduced three at the back in the Netherlands. No one did that. No one. Later he switched to a 4-4-2 diamond. No one did that. His Utrecht team could switch in a match and switch between 4-4-2 flat, 4-4-2 diamond, 5-3-2, 5-2-3. He made them flexible. He introduced in the Netherlands zonal pressing. I think the benchmark is Liverpool, right? The 4-3-3 with the three guys up top and three guys in the middle and four uh, defenders at the back in a zonal way. He did that at Utrecht. No one did that. So the entire league played 4-3-3 with the ball and 4-4-2 off the ball. And Utrecht did exactly the opposite. So that was funny. And that made him by far the most interesting manager in the league from a tactical perspective. But funnily enough, The first two months or so, the players at Utrecht were like, okay, what is happening? We have been playing 4-3-3 all our lives. Why three at the back? Why why make it so hard? And they didn't win a lot of matches. I'm not going to repeat it all the time, but Ten Hag, it can be hard to listen to him in Dutch because he has a very Eastern accent. He grunts a little bit. He talks fast. So the players at Utrecht, in the beginning, they were like, who did they bring in? What is this guy? He's trying to do 3-5-2. I can't understand him. Where did he play? At, at Twente? He, he was a center back at Twente. Uh, uh, what does he know? You know, that kind of thing. And then afterwards, after two or three months, they started winning and they were fourth in his first season and fifth in his second season with a not very talented squad. Every player thought, hey, I'm playing maybe the best football of my career. Bigger clubs are calling my agent, but me, maybe something is going well here. And that can be interesting at United as well, you know, because if the Utrecht players think, where did this guy play? Imagine what maybe Ronaldo thinks of him, you know? So that might be interesting. Let's talk a little bit about the tactical aspect here. I've got here, I think people tend to think of so-called elite system managers like Ten Hag as not being very flexible and sort of imposing their style. I don't know if that's necessarily true, but you're making it clear that he does have a level of tactical flexibility and I'm, I'm interested in how important you think that tactical flexibility is going to be when assessing his fit at Manchester United. So I'm going to jump ahead a little bit here, not too much but a little bit but if I close my eyes now I can see all of the running patterns and passing patterns at Ajax of his team now. It's all very much the same. It's not flexible at all. Ten Hag at Ajax always played 4-2-3-1. The interesting thing here is what will we see at Manchester United? The flexible guy from Utrecht or the system guy from Ajax? And I can only guess. But to come back to the question, I think it's a huge aspect of his toolbox as a manager that he can also say, hey, we play in a different way. And I think a lot of people will be surprised at the first year at Manchester United because they think of Ten Hag as this 
Ajax guy, Cruyff guy, because they watch the Champions League and they see Ajax play these amazing games, but they are not aware of the previous 10 years in his coaching career, you know? Mm. So I think he is more flexible than people think. And then from Utrecht, he goes to Ajax. You suggested that you thought he might end up as PSV manager? Yeah, for sure. When he got recognized, so this is a pattern that will follow in later years as well, but the tactics nerds like you and me, they already saw, hey, this Ten Hag guy is special. He does different stuff and he gets results, right? Because sometimes as tactics nerds, we think that coaches that have a certain style always also bring in results. That's not the case, right? We Hmm. can conflict interesting with good sometimes. And Ten Hag was interesting and good. So that's what caught my eye when he was high in the league table with Utrecht all the time. Media picked it up as well. And I always thought that he would end up as PSV manager because he coached at PSV earlier as an assistant manager to Fred Rutten. He didn't care about having the ball as much as you would like to see from an Ajax manager. His Utrecht, when they were pressed, they didn't try to play out from the back. They just played a long ball to Aller. Utrecht played a cup final against Feyenoord where they barely crossed the halfway line. So he was very pragmatic. I always thought he was good and that Ajax would think, yeah, we're not going to hire that guy because he didn't play at Ajax. He has zero caps and his team doesn't even play out from the back. So why would we hire him? So I was very surprised when Ajax uh, hired him actually in the December 2017. Yes. And we then have a body of literature, so to speak, of five seasons now at Ajax. So let's talk about those seasons, starting off with the 2017-18 season, where he joins midway through the campaign. What does early Ten Hag at Ajax look like? Yeah, I'll paint a little picture. Ajax reached the Europa League final, ironically against Manchester United, and they lost. And the club was on a high anyway. They reached the final again, blah, blah, blah. First of all, Peter Bos, the manager, went to Dortmund. But then after that, something really sad happened with Abdel Haknouri, who collapsed on the pitch, had a heart attack. And the entire club went from a high to an incredibly low point. They hired a manager, Marcel Keizer, who seems to be okay. Not very special, but okay. No qualification for Europe, no European football for Ajax, which is unheard of because they played the Europa League final three months earlier. And then in December, Kaiser gets sacked and everyone at Ajax is, yeah, what do we do now? And then they bring in Ten Hag from Utrecht. And I am not joking. The entire fan base is negative about this move. They think, yeah, why are we hiring the manager of Utrecht? The people do not mention the tactical aspects. What I just mentioned about not playing out from the back and not pressing and stuff, but just Why are we hiring the manager of Utrecht, who has never won a prize, to fix Ajax? And Dutch newspaper, The Telegraaf, I wouldn't say it's the equivalent of the Daily Mail, but something like that. A bit more class, but not much. They run a huge campaign about Ten Hag, who has an Eastern accent and who... They don't say it with as much words, but the, the bottom line is Ajax is hiring a guy from the East, can't speak, doesn't know anything, and... It's not going to work. That's what they think. And he had incredibly bad press. So not pressing on the field, but incredibly bad pieces in the media in that first half year. And you've mentioned that in terms of the tactical side of things that it didn't necessarily go particularly well in that first stint. No, no, not at all. Maybe it was a bit confirmation bias from my side. Who knows? But 
the build-up in his first half year as Ajax manager was just bad. The positional play was bad. At one point, he just put Frenkie de Jong in central defense. And the build-up of Ajax was give the ball to Frenkie and see what he can do, which was fun to look at. <laughs> was fun, I have to say, but it didn't really speak of a lot of managerial influence. They were well organized against the ball. And once again, maybe I just saw all my own beliefs confirmed and, and I was a bit biased, but I just saw exactly what I thought I would see, which is well organized against the ball. Build up was not good. So for example, if the central defender had the ball, yeah, the number six was not available to get on the ball. Uh, the width on the pitch was not good. All of those little tactical details that were just not Ajax style, you know? And the media thought he was just, some guy and he wasn't good enough and I just saw okay they're better against the ball but on the ball he's not going to fix this and even I thought in the summer of 2018 from yeah this is not really the path that you want to be on but in fact it does turn around something happens in that summer what is it that happens that summer yeah so once again Ajax had a lot of money and they didn't win prizes and that's a very strange combination in football so after that season they just spend a lot of money on Blind and Tadic Ziyech Wanted to get out, could have gone to Sevilla and Roma, but for some reason those moves didn't materialize. Ajax were fully sure that Ziyech would leave. They already gave his shirt number to Tadic, which angered Ziyech. But then all of a sudden, Ziyech is on the team, Tadic is on the team, Frenkie de Jong is still on the team, De Ligt is still on the team. I forget Donny van der Beek as well. Onana, of course, I forget. And Ajax have a very good squad. And then I thought, well, if you're not champion now, I cannot, I cannot believe it because they had such an amazing squad for Eredivisie. And I know a lot of players that went from Ajax to bigger clubs didn't really make it there. Eh, Ziyech, Van de Beek, De Ligt, Frenkie plays everything, De Ligt plays everything, but maybe not as we would have expected it. But for Eredivisie terms, that team was ridiculous. Ridiculous. So I was like, okay, what is he going to do with this team? And they play Champions League qualification matches in August and July. And yeah, they come out with a 4-2-3-1 shape. It turns into a 3-1-5-1 in attack. Against the ball, they press. It's a high line. Daily Blind from the first minute is amazing. Tadic is organizing from the first second. The pressing up front. They have Frenkie de Jong, who's the best ball progressor in Europe that season. They have Ziyech, whose stats are amazing in that season when it comes to chance creation. Dominates every creative stat in the Eredivisie that season. Chance created, key passes, through passes, dribbles, etc. And it's just amazing football. So it's again the same pattern. With my friends who follow football from a tactical view, we're like, whoa, what are we seeing here? This is so modern. This is so attacking. This is so well-organized against the ball as well. And if it goes wrong, the Licht is in the back and he mops everything up as a center back. And what a team this is. And then, you know, Ajax play against Bayern Munich away. They draw 1-1. They make it out of a group that's very hard in the Champions League with Bayern Munich and a very strong Benfica team. And I think everyone knows what happens after the winter break, right? With that deep, deep Champions League run and missing a Champions League final for two minutes. What about in the league? How did they look in the league that season? Yeah, like they were playing on 80%. Honestly, PSV Eindhoven was very good that season as well with Mark van Bommel. In the winter break, Ajax had won 16 out of 17 matches. And PSV had also won 16 out of 17 matches, something like that. It was crazy. They both ended up with over 80 points 
yeah, it's a bit boring, but every Dutch team more or less defended 4-4-2. Then Frenkie, de Jong dropped next to the center backs. And then you had that 3-1 structure from the back. I'm using a lot of tactics word, but I guess it's okay on this podcast, right? Yeah, I'll let you off. <laughs> you had a 3-1 structure in the back. You had all the five offensive lanes occupied and you had one striker with Tadic who dropped in and there were overloads on the side of the ball. If teams tried to man-mark Frenkie de Jong, Ziyech would drop deeper. It was so flexible. Tadic dropping to the right side if he needed to be. I didn't mention Masraoui, who gets a big transfer this summer, but he was also very good from right back. Yeah, it was just the best football Ajax have played in the 21st century. And of course, after that, every Ajax fan and every media outlet is like, oh, mm, maybe something good went on there. And I have to correct myself as well, because I thought hmm, maybe this Ten Hag guy is not really an Ajax manager. And then he just completely flipped that and played the most Ajax football of this century. 2019, I think, is a letdown for a lot of football clubs because we obviously have COVID midway through it. It was a bit of a letdown in terms of the Ajax season as well. So do you want to talk us through that dip after the high of 2018-19? So when Ten Hag started at Utrecht, he took a player from Bayern too, Rico Strieder. I will forgive you if you do not know him. At Ajax, he brought in Labiat from Utrecht. Didn't play a big role eventually, but he brought him in. And in 2019, he brought in Quincy Promes, who he worked with at Twente and Go Ahead Eagles. And uh, yeah, that was just, from my perspective, that was really a Ten Hag signing. And Promes didn't really do well. The Licht goes to Juventus. They sign Edson Alvarez as center back. That didn't work out. Alvarez now plays as a midfielder, which is more of his thing, I think. Still not an Ajax player for me, but okay. They sign Ras van Marien for 12 million. As a replacement for Frankie, doesn't work out. Ziyech stays, Van de Beek stays. So it's still a pretty good team. But uh, from my perspective, he was just let down by the recruitment. They failed to get out of a Champions League group with Chelsea, managed by Lampard. So yeah, Champions League, that season, very disappointing. Ajax had this goal that they wanted to attack the European top again. And they were a bit blindsided by that one season. They thought, okay, from now on, every season we'll go into the next round. And they were knocked out of the Champions League in the group stage. In a group that was easier than the year before. They were knocked out in a group with Chelsea, Valencia and Lille. And yeah, that was a big disappointment for everyone. Honestly, I can be critical of managers, but my overall verdict on that season is that Ten Hag was just let down by the recruitment. He could not play the style that he was playing a year earlier with Alvarez, with Marine. There were some injuries as well. They had a problem at right center back because Alvarez didn't cut it clearly. So they had to play with Joel Feldman, who's now at Brighton, who's a good player, but not a Champions League knockout type of player. Then COVID came along. And then in March, when the season stopped, they were level with AZ Alkmaar on points. And I think if the season runs out, then AZ Alkmaar are champions and not Ajax. But yeah, we cannot say that, of course. But when COVID came around, Ajax official Mark Overmars, who has been making headlines for different reasons lately, but he came into the media, Telegraaf, which I mentioned earlier, the paper, who has strong connections in football. And he said, hey, listen, guys, we have to stop the season. Um, this is not going well. Health is the most important, <laughs> blah, blah, blah. But they were first on goal difference over AZ Alkmaar. And 
Yeah, I cannot prove it, but I think everyone at Ajax was like, okay, we messed up this season. Let's try to get it cancelled. And then next season, we'll be back. So let's talk about the period after that, then the last couple of seasons. We see Eric Ten Hag reinventing Ajax with new players. Same system, though. So talk to us about that period. So the way Ajax plays when they have the ball attacking, it is still 3-1-5-1, but it is less flexible. The most important player in the build-up when Ajax had their amazing season was Frenkie, and the most important player in the final third was Ziyech. With those two guys gone, they miss now a little bit of a creative spark. So Ten Hag also said a couple of months ago that he thinks that the 2018-19 team that reached the semi-final of the Champions League was his best team because they were more creative and they had that surprise element in them. Now, the last two seasons, what we see at Ajax, it's still very good. Their offensive numbers are still amazing on a team level. If we look at shots, expected goals, etc., etc. But it is more rigid. It is less flexible. So on the right, we have not anymore Ziyech, who is a number 10 on the right, but Anthony, who is a more traditional dribble winger, a bit of an old-fashioned winger, even though he plays with his left foot on the right. He's a perfect one versus one winger, but not like Ziyech coming inside, creating an overload, being more surprising. So Masraoui, who's the right back, shows up less on the outside and more on the inside. And they make the same runs and same actions over and over again, which is unstoppable, even for Dortmund, who got defeated 4-0 at Amsterdam. And I'm not saying it's worse, but it's different. It's more nuanced. The, in the 2019 team, Tadic played striker, and he dropped into midfield all the time, and Van der Beek would take over the nine position, and it was very flexible. The 2020 and 2022 teams have Haller, who is a central forward, who never leaves the striker position. The left winger is Tadic, who plays on the left or on the inside. The left back now is Daly Blind, who is not an overlapping fullback because he does not have the stamina to do that 30 times in a match. So it is not worse, but different. For sure. And obviously it's gone well for him during that period, both domestically and in the Champions League. Yeah, I think there is something about Haller that Ten Hag really likes, and that's that he scores goals, right? So he always plays with Haller, and it's more like he's most often the finisher, and he stays up top, and he occupies two center backs at the time. But for me, I liked the, the other team more. But it's funny that last season, Ajax were champion with 88 points, and when they reached the semifinal of the Champions League, they had 86 points. So... Of course, that's all variance and random and blah, blah, blah. But the results actually improved. Well, let's move on to talk a little bit more about the the tactics, what we'll expect to see from Ten Hag. I've got a question from one of our listeners, Alex Young, who said, there are plenty of positional play, high-pressing coaches. Tactically, what would distinguish him from a Pochettino, a Guardiola, a Nagelsmann or a Tuchel? Yeah, so maybe I'm just a bit stubborn, but I wouldn't immediately qualify Ten Hag as a positional play high-pressing coach, right? I've watched him for 10 years or so, and that has only been present in the last three years at Ajax when he had the players for it. Once again, I'm not sure if we will see Ajax Ten Hag at Menu or if we will see Utrecht Ten Hag at Menu. But what I do think is that in the last two seasons or so, Ten Hag really moved to a more 
Conte and Van Gaal style of play with a lot more runs that are drilled in on the training pitch with 11 against nil training sessions, you know. So I think Guardiola in particular gives a lot more freedom to his players once they reach the final third. I think Nagelsmann likes chaos a lot and Ten Hag does like control a bit more. I think just like all of these four coaches, Pochettino, Guardiola, Nagelsmann and Tuchel, Ten Hag obsesses over the rest defense. So how does my team look when we lose the ball? Are we well protected against counterattacks? Stuff like that. That's not very different from those guys. Uh, yeah, that's about it. I, mean, I think Tuchel is the one that's closest to him of those four because they both want control. They're both not afraid to attack, but they also can give creative freedom to players if they really earn it, like Ziyech in the Netherlands or Neymar at PSG. But if you look now at Chelsea, there are not a lot of players that have creative freedom, I think. So of those four guys, I would categorize him the most as being a Tuchel guy. Does that make sense of all? Yeah, that makes makes sense, yeah. Well, I think the best thing to do in terms of thinking about the overall style of Ten Hag is to, to just talk about those four phases of play that people often distinguish. So we'll talk about in possession, out possession, attacking transition, defensive transition. So in possession, you've talked a lot about the structure in this sort of 3-1-5-1 shape. Lots of fluidity, lots of flexibility in the current team anyway. So you can see either of the two fullbacks can push forward. You can sometimes see one of the centre-backs pushing into midfield as well. At times you'll see Edson Alvarez dropping into the back line. So plenty of fluidity in possession. Yeah, sure. Like I said earlier that the team he coaches now is more rigid and less flexible than what it was earlier. But if you compare it to other teams, it's so, so fluid. I should have explained myself better <laughs> because you, what you say is totally correct. Alvarez can pop out at central defense and Timber moves into midfield. And even last weekend, Timber was playing as right back, sometimes popped in as a left midfielder. So I should have explained better that indeed it is now less flexible than it was earlier, but it's still very, very flexible. And once again, I would be so, so surprised if Ten Hag would show up at menu and say, okay, guys, First training session, Harry Maguire, Lindelof, you guys play on the halfway line now. No protection uh, in your back, 50 meters. That would really surprise me. So I think he'll be a bit more cautious than that. But in possession, Ten Hag always tries to look for an overload around the ball in the first phase. And then in the final phase, tries to get his team into a good scoring position. He also is a guy that said, I don't want to see a lot of outside of the box shooting. So he wants to prioritize shots from high-quality positions. I don't know exactly how far he is in the data side. I, I don't know. I'm not sure about that. But I do know that his teams generate high-quality shots in possession. Out of possession, the guy obsesses over a good pressing structure. At Ajax, it has been very simple. One of the wingers presses the fullback, and the fullback of Ajax presses the fullback of the opponent, if that makes sense. It's very simple, but it's done at such a high speed that opponents often struggle. Now, if Ajax do not win the ball in a pressing situation, then they play in a 4-4-2 mid-block, which does not happen a lot, I can tell you, but that's kind of his thing. Attacking transition, it's interesting. He said that his main goal at Ajax when he took over was to make them more direct when they won the ball, because one of the reasons Dutch football was so far behind is that Attacking transitions were so, so slow. So we win the ball, we keep it in the team, and we pass it around at the back. That's what Dutch teams mostly do. 
But then Ajuans, we win the ball, boom, we go forward. We immediately go forward. Ajax have gotten notably better at this. And the defensive transition for Ten Hag is like maybe the most important of anything. He obsesses over his dress defense, always talks about how they should be positioned correctly. Takes a lot of risks in this with the positioning of his center backs so high and the midfielder very high, but he always obsesses over that it's correct and that it's two meters too far to the left. Then a player can hear from him, hey, you have to be two meters far to the left. Yeah, and it's interesting that we were talking about those managers before because I feel like each of those managers really, maybe less so with Pochettino, but they all obsess over rest defence, right? I guess because their teams are playing such possessional football, such attacking football, that they're always going to be vulnerable in turnovers. And that's where the variability comes in, right? If you are open in those situations, that's the difference between winning and losing games. Yeah, did you see that Nagelsmann clip from maybe two months ago where he like in so much detail talks about the rest defence, about... You know what I said earlier, maybe three or four meters more to the right can make such a difference. Did you see that clip at a press conference? I did, yeah. And I also watched the Classica game this weekend on a tactical cam. And all you need to do is watch those sorts of games with the full pitch and you can see how important that rest defense is to Nagelsmann. Yeah, Ten Hag is like that as well. He can can talk about the rest defense and endlessly. And actually, what surprises me the most, and that's an interesting point to make, I made it earlier a bit, but I'll say it again, is that apparently Ten Hag, no big playing career, talks a bit weird, didn't play for the Dutch national team, but apparently he has the authority over those big players to tell them, hey, you should be in this spot, you should be in that spot. So one way or another, he he convinces the entire team that his way is the way to go, and then they become better after they do his way. So... Mm. It's funny how he does it. Ajax is very uh, closed, so you can never watch a training session. That's impossible. But it would be interesting to see for me how, how he does that, you know? Because at Ajax, there were a lot of really, really strong personalities with Ziyech, De Ligt, Daily Blind, Tadic, you know, all guys who, who really have an opinion. And for some reason, it did work out there. The players didn't have a, a revolt or an uprise or something. So he must do something good, very good on a training pitch. Yeah, another clip that was doing the rounds on social media this week was the clip where Ten Hag is basically laying out Noah Lang for not running as much, which I think is an interesting clip. And the line in that that he says is, it's our game too, it's not just yours, which I think is a really great line. Just this idea that there's 11 of us on this pitch and we we all need to be doing this stuff for each other as well. So Yeah, but it's funny, right? Because And then after this, we'll go back to the, to the main topic. But it's funny that Noah Lang is, is a good player, right? But... Ziyech is a bit like Noah Lang, you know, a bit rebellious. And a player like Frankie de Jong can be a bit rebellious, but it never materialized onto a point that they were done with him, even though he told them to do extra sprint work if they didn't listen. So apparently he has some authority over all those guys. Just one more thing. I'd just like to go back to the out of possession stuff a little bit. So there's that high press that you talked about where you've said it's it's fairly simple. You force the ball wide uh, and then you go sort of man for man around that channel and try and cut the ball out uh, and then fall back into a 4-4-2 if that doesn't work out. But there's also a fairly aggressive counter press as well. Uh, You talked a little bit about Ajax going quite direct after winning the ball back as well. So thoughts on that counter press in particular, like how it's it's working. And I guess with the, the added element that Ralph Rangnick has tried to get Manchester United playing in a similar way and it hasn't worked. So do you think that we'll see a different out-of-possession system at Manchester United? I don't know, of course, but my best guess 
would be that Ten Hag, being the perfectionist that he is, is now watching every league game of United of the last two seasons for three times because he is like that. He's obsessive. So I think he has been watching a lot of footage and it would not surprise me if he would say, okay, I know how effective a counter press can be. I did it at Ajax. To a lesser extent, I used it sometimes at Utrecht. But this menu team cannot do it. The big question for the media, of course, is, oh, what will Ronaldo do? Because that's by far the biggest name in that team. But if he keeps Ronaldo and if he keeps Bruno Fernandes, for example, and if that spine of that team keeps intact, I think he will come to the conclusion, I cannot play a counter-pressing style here. I cannot do it. And that he will put into place maybe a 4-4-2 medium block. And they will be, because it's Ten Hag, they will be very organized. They will concede not a lot of chances and all of that. But I would be surprised if he keeps this team intact and does counter-pressing. On the other hand, maybe this summer they go for four or five players who all suit that style and you just go for it from the very first minute. That can be the case as well. So I'm not sure. In terms of then the in-possession stuff at Manchester United, presumably the pieces are all there for Manchester United to be able to play that sort of flexible in-possession style of play. I would be shocked, what I said earlier, if he will play with Maguire and Lindelöf, for example, on the halfway line. I think Varane can do that. They do not have that passing midfielder. So his most used build-up structure at Ajax by far is 3 plus 1, which can be flexible to 3 plus 2 or 2 plus 1, but most often it's 3 plus 1. And United do not have that one, that passing midfield player. So, for example, at Ajax, that has been Alvarez, who improved a lot in that regard, but is still not an amazing ball progressor. But he has been helped a lot by the fact there are four amazing ball progressors in defense with Blind, Mazraoui, Timber and Martinez. So I wouldn't be surprised if Ten Hag figures it out some way or another. But I don't think, and once again, it's interesting that I say this, but I don't think we will see that exactly three plus one structure from the very first minute at Mm. Menu. Maybe it will be more conservative. Maybe it will be what Tuchel did, play three plus two at first and then switch it up later. I don't know. I'm very curious, actually. I'm not sure how it will go. We did have a couple of listener questions, actually, about the midfield situation. So Jeff Russell said, how will Eric Ten Hag mould United's biggest problem area, the midfield? The last player United bought, who you could reasonably classify as a deep midfielder, eight or six, was Fred under Mourinho. Will Eric Ten Hag be satisfied with the Mac-Fred duo? So that's obviously McTominay on top of that. And then Grant Gendo with a very on-brand question saying, will Eric Ten Hag's individual coaching be sufficient enough to bring in an in-possession improvement out of someone like Scott McTominay? So two sort of elements to the same question. Is it the case that Manchester United need to bring in that one player that you've said, the ball-progressing midfielder, or will he be able to get something out of the players that he already has to hand? Can I start with the last question about McTominay? Yeah, for sure. Because for me, that's an interesting question. Will the individual coaching of Ten Hag be sufficient to improve McTominay? Yes, I think Ten Hag will improve McTominay if McTominay plays. He did that with Alvarez. He did that with other players. But I think the gap between what McTominay can do now and what a Champions League knockout team needs in that position is too big. I wouldn't be surprised if McTominay gets a fair amount of minutes, but I also would not be surprised if he gets used in the role of Alvarez now at Ajax. So on the ball, just play it to the same shirt and everyone is happy with you. 
That's the role of Alvarez at Ajax. And off the ball, you're a killer. And that's actually a good role for McTominay because, sure, McTominay is not the best ball-playing midfielder at this time. But what about the coaching at Menu? You know, that's maybe also not the best. So I think there might be a role for McTominay in the first season. If we look at Ten Hag's history at Ajax, at Twente, at Goethe, he always brings in players that he knows. Barcelona are in big financial trouble. They have a player who does not always play 90 minutes. They have a manager that likes the Catalan boys more. So I think just uh, drop 100 million on Barcelona, get Frenkie de Jong, and that's your first problem solved. I was, of, of course, talking a bit lightly. Uh, <laughs> I'm not sure if it would work out like that, but I think Frenkie de Jong would be the best signing man you could make. And I think a Frenkie de Jong-McTominay double pivot would work amazing because that's basically how Frenkie played at Ajax with a guy next to him. Yeah, the midfield for me, for sure, to talk about the question of Jeff Russell, for sure is the biggest problem at uh, at Menu. And whenever I watch them, I find myself frustrated to refer to the beginning of the podcast, you know, uh, where's the recruitment at, you know? They miss so much of what they can do, you know? And it's not FIFA career mode, so I'm not going to do like I did earlier with Frankie. Yeah, just pick him up. But <laughs> they surely need three or four players in that midfield zone to become the Champions League knockout team that they want to be again. One of the things you've talked about a lot in this episode is how Ten Hag likes to bring players with him that he's had before. But obviously there is a player who he's had before on the books at Manchester United, currently playing at Everton in, in Donny van der Beek. So what impact do you think van der Beek could have on the midfield in that sense? I think van der Beek has been played out of position. If he played at all for Menu. His best role is as a 10. He can knit everything together, play in a sort of style around the box. If United are not that dominant team as Ajax were in Eredivisie, I'm not sure Van de Beek will start. It's something in the Netherlands people take for granted. I'm not sure. If they do not have that kind of dominant style from the first season that Van de Beek excels in, I'm not sure how they will do. It was always a very strange signing for me, one of the many strange menu signings over the past decades that they brought in a midfielder who excels in a certain kind of role, who played a lot of roles at Ajax, but excels in that number 10 role and can play in the box a lot. And they signed him even though their number 10 doesn't even do that. And then they had Bruno Fernandes, who does a lot of things very, very well, but not from the side, you know? So I was very surprised Tony van der Beek went there, actually. So let's start wrapping up. And I suppose the big question to ask then is is how you anticipate the Eric Ten Hag era at Manchester United? First of all, I'm, I'm so, so curious which side of Ten Hag we will see. I started this podcast by saying that a manager can always improve the club, but even a really good manager like Ten Hag who has proven he can improve teams over time, I'm not sure even a guy like that can succeed at Manchester United because of the structure. So the recruitment side will be so, so important as well. If they can get that together, I think he will be able to bring them back into top four contention. I know they finished second last season, but into top four contention because now they're not really doing that. If we look long-term, Guardiola's contract ends in 2023. I think Klopp, help me a bit with this, John. I think his contract ends 2023. Yeah, I think so. Seven years after he came in, he he has seven-year contracts, doesn't he? So I can't remember when he brought in, but it's definitely coming towards the end of his time as well. So yeah, I'm, I'm I'm curious how it goes. We know that Liverpool is a very smart club. They'll probably have a short list of managers that can succeed Klopp. But the future is uncertain in the Premier League after the Guardiola and Klopp era, because now we are in the Guardiola and Klopp era, of course. So I'm just so curious. If you listen to this podcast, I have so many questions, you know, about how, how it will play out. 
there is also a possibility, I mentioned it earlier, that the results do not go his way. And that what happened at Utrecht at the beginning, that the players thought, okay, who is this guy? What is he doing? He talks strange. That can happen at Menu as well, you know, with Ronaldo. So I'm not sure. Maybe it will be a colossal failure. Who knows? I'm actually not sure. So a bit of a boring answer, but it's the truth. Yeah, and I think we've got enough history behind us now at Manchester United to know that you don't just simply throw in good managers and get out the results there. Well, Eric, it's been a real pleasure chatting to you today. Before we end, just a note to the listeners that next week we're going to have Carlon Carpenter of Statsbomb and Bath City FC talking to us about the use of tactics. Former Between the Post writer, Carlin. Is he? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so he will be talking about the use of tactics in performance analysis. So do keep an eye out for that. But Eric, what's the best way for our listeners to pick up the stuff that you're putting out? Yeah, just go to betweentheposts.net. I have so many young writers who are like 19 years old, 21 years old, who are so, so talented. They write match reports on our website. You can take a subscription there so I can pay those guys. I'm stunned at what they know already at such a young age. And they know so much more than I did when I was 21. So go check that out. This is Champions League week, for example. We have within 24 hours an analysis of City against Real Madrid, of Liverpool against Villarreal. Young guys who know their stuff, I can pay them a little bit if you take a subscription. So that's where you can find me. And yeah, I have a Twitter account. If you put that in the show notes, you can get a lot of Dutch to spam in your timeline if that's your thing. <laughs> well, Eric, thank you so much for coming on today. Thanks, man. I really enjoyed it. You've been listening to a podcast about tactics. I'm John McKenzie. If you like our artwork, then do check out Frankie Mitchell's portfolio over on her Twitter account at MadeByFrankie. Her work is incredible and she's often available for commissions, so do check that out. And then this music, written and recorded by my good friend Joe Hill and his North Arc Septet. You can find out more about them and listen to the music at www.joehillmusic.bandcamp.com. See you next week. Thank you.